Hello everyone, welcome back to the Guiding Light Podcast. I'm your host, Shane McClellan, and with me I have a special guest. This is Joel James. Hi everyone. I love how you put up your hand and you wave to him, Joel. Very good. Hey. So, <laughs> so Joel is my best friend. We've actually known each other since we were a year and a half old. And he is also my systems guy. So we're going to spend this podcast talking about boat systems, which is going to be very interesting to some of you and very boring to the others. There's no in-between, is there, Joel? Not really. And I'm surprised I'm your systems guy since I barely know what a boat is. Yeah, whatever. Some of Joel's background is he has rebuilt 30,000-volt streetcars, so I think he can handle a 12-volt electrical boat system. Probably. And so, Joel, at one time, you and I were going to buy the guiding light together. Yeah, we had actually talked about buying buying the guiding light together. And, uh, you know, we were talking, I think we were looking at different directions. And at one point, I kind of decided, you know, maybe for me, getting into the boat wouldn't have been the best idea in the world, um, mainly because, you know, of the way my, my future was going, and which eventually led to me meeting my wife and marrying her. And, you know, just my observation, I know you really love being on the boat, but the more time you spent on the boat, you realize the cruising and liveaboard lifestyle is not necessarily for you. Would you agree? I would agree with that, and uh, I really enjoy air conditioning. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so you helped me pick out the guiding light, which is a Lagoon 410. And what all, we basically, what we did for you listeners that don't know, we, I had just sold my house the weekend before and we went down to Fort Lauderdale. We had a broker, I wasn't the biggest fan of this broker, I don't know about you, we'll talk about that in a minute, Joel. But um, we had a broker and we basically told him we want to look at every model of catamaran that's under $300,000. And we drove four hours south to Key West, and we drove four hours north to Palm Springs or somewhere. What did you think of that weekend? What were you looking at when we were looking at boats and anything else? Oh, uh, well, at the time, um, I really didn't know a whole lot about boats. And so I was just kind of, I think, tagging along to give you my impression on things. And one thing I learned was there are a lot of style of boats out there. Um, and uh, I, I kind of agree with you. I really, uh, you know, without all the boats we saw, I think the, the lagoons were actually the nicer ones that we had seen. Um, I don't remember all the different styles of boats we saw. But I know well, the, the age ranges of the boats were all over the place. They were all over the place. And I think we saw eight, eight-ish yeah, different models. And... For me, and I'm a I'm six foot four. Joel is six foot, which is tall, but not as tall as me. And my biggest thing, there were only two models out of the eight that I could stand up in the galley. That was the worst place for me was the galley trying yeah, to stand up. All I know is every time we were any place in the boat, your head was constantly hitting the top. And do you remember what our broker said? I think he said something about you'll just have to get used to that. Well, he said it more. How often are you in the galley, really? And I'm thinking, well, I'm going to go with three times a day. You know, that just kind of pissed me off when he said that, I've got to admit. 
So of all the boats we looked at, the only two that we felt had the headroom was the Lagoon 410 and uh, let's say the Lagoon, which would be the 410 and the 380 and the Leopard, which I, I can't remember which models of Leopards or the Moorings boat that we looked at. And quite frankly, it came down, we liked both boats, but the Leopards seemed to be what, $50,000 more. Yeah, they were more expensive. Of course, there was the, the older boat that we saw that had the open air toilet. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't well, even, it was perfect, but it was a little bit on the large side. Well, that and the whole boat was just old, and I did not care for that boat at all. <laughs> but it had lots of room, and your head didn't hit the, hit anywhere in the galley. Yeah, well, that's true. And and what he's talking about the open toilet, they actually had a toilet with a I think a latch down seat and lid, and it was over the flybridge. So any offerings you made dropped right down into the sea. I don't know how legal that thing was, <laughs> but it was an interesting concept. I think that was the same boat that happened to have that door or that window or door between the two bunks. Yeah, I think so. And I never did figure out what that part was for. It was a big boat. I think it was a 50 footer. Yeah, I think it was 50, yeah, 50 foot, 52 foot, something like that. And the price was right. It was just, it was dark, it was dingy, it was ugly. I didn't like anything about that boat. But, but the toilet had a view. <laughs> yeah, just don't go to the bathroom at the wrong time or you're going to get a, uh, a little bidet going on you. <laughs> the, um, so anyway, so we, after the long weekend, we settled. We knew we wanted a, a lagoon. To be honest, I thought we were going to end up with a 380 because they were smaller than the 410. What I didn't figure out until later, the 410 was cheaper because it was an older boat than the 380s tend to be. 380 yeah. was a newer model. So when we got the guiding light, and you did not see it until I pulled up to the dock in Houston. That is right. Actually, it was in Kima, which is south of Houston. And what do you think of it? I liked it. It was a, it was a nice boat, um, seemed roomy. And uh, I mean, I mean, it looked like a nice boat, um, but it needed a lot of work. Well, I don't know about a lot of well, work. It needed work. It needed work. I don't know if I'd go with a lot. And the interesting thing is, it took me 16 days. It was eight days from the British Virgin Islands where I bought the boat to Grand Cayman. And the two people I was with, we spent one day, 24 hours, in Grand Cayman. And most of that time was filling up with fuel, water, getting weather, getting uh, groceries, that type of thing. And then we did another eight uh, days from Grand Cayman to Houston. And during this time, my the guys that were with me, they were like, where are we going? I'm like, oh, we're going to Galveston, Houston area. Oh, okay, where? I don't know yet. Joel is finding us a dock space. I had no <laughs> idea where you were going to find dock space or even if you were going to find dock space where we were selling there what all was involved in that oh boy that's been uh that's been more than a year or two ago and i've slept a few times since then yeah we're gonna say about nine years ago <laughs> uh, let's see here i remember you going i need dock space i went oh crap well so i just kind of picked up the phone book and started finding uh, uh finding marinas and calling around and what I learned is, um, marinas, the prices are all over the place. And uh, I knew that price was a concern. 
So as I called around, you know, people would say, oh yeah, I have a, I have a dock that would work fine. What type of boat do you have? I have a Lagoon 410. Oh, that's a catamaran. I don't have space for that. So apparently the amount of marinas that could support this boat narrowed down greatly unless we were willing to basically buy two spots. Right. And then a lot of places didn't have two spots side by side. Uh, I know, I think I spent several days of calling different marinas before I finally found one in Kima that actually had an opening on the end of a dock that would uh, work for the, the boat. Well, from what I remember, you told me that you kind of had to beg them a little bit to let you get the spot. Yeah, I did because they I, apparently they didn't like the end, the end of the piers, they don't, they didn't like giving up. Um, they liked, I guess, having them on a, uh, just kind of a overnight basis or something in emergencies, but. Okay. Within the, um, cruising and marine industry, those are called transient spaces. Oh, transient space. Okay. Just so you know. So, yeah, but they, uh, they didn't really want to give them up. And uh, I was like, listen, I've got a boat coming in and I don't have a place for it to go. I've got to have a place. And finally, one of them said, yeah, we can, I, I think we have a place we can put you. And if I remember correct, you actually had to move the boat from its original position. No. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of a funny story. Um, they did put us at the end of the dock. And after about a month or so, the space right next to it, just inside the T-head, was wide enough for the guiding light. And it wasn't wide enough for two monoholes. And so me and everybody on the dock, they're like, well, we'll help you real quick. We didn't even start the engines. And they just said, let's just move it in there, forget it. And so we actually moved this boat in just with dock lines, didn't start it up or anything like that. And as soon as we got in there, we're like, oh, we love it. It was a four point tie, it, it floated, but everything about it was better. And the marina came over the next day and said, oh, that's very nice. You got to move it back to your spot because we have a boat coming in in like three days. And so that's why we had to move it. But other than that, we stayed on that spot that you had found for us. Yeah, it worked for, how long were you there? To... I want to say nine months. Nine, was it just nine months? Yeah, somewhere around there. Okay, it's, for some reason it seemed a lot longer than nine months. But then driving down every weekend. Well, you, I think you averaged two and a half weekends a month for nine months. Yeah. And it was what, two hour drive each way. Two hour drive each way. And people ask me all the time, why did you go to Kima? Or why do you want to go to Kima? And, you know, I had the easy answers that you were there to help me. And it was closer to drive. You know, I had a car full of stuff, you know, some clothes, some buckets, you know, some stuff for the boat type of thing. And, you know, my parents were up in Dallas, so it was an easier drive. Although that was kind of silly because I could have driven to Fort Lauderdale just as easy. You know, it would have taken longer. But, and this is one of those parts of that story of, I think it was divine inter intervention where God wanted me to get on the boat. And, you know, we have more of that story, which you know most of that. But one, in this particular case, I didn't know why I was going to Kima. I just knew I needed to go to Kima. And I don't know if you remember, it turned out like within two weeks, three weeks of getting the boat there and tied up, my dad went into emergency open heart surgery yep. for a single bypass yep. and then later did the what was what do you have the aortic artery or something like yeah, that yeah he went he went through a lot of painful procedures and because i was in chemo which is 
what we came to be half an hour south of downtown, an hour south of downtown Houston. Within five hours, I could drive up to Dallas. So I spent a week at a time, once a month, up helping my mom and dad while he was recovering from the surgery. Yeah. So to me, that's why I was there. I just didn't know it, but God did have a plan. Yep. yep. Which is a fantastic story, but it's getting away from what we want to talk about on this particular po uh, podcast, which is boat systems. What's a boat system? What's a boat system? You're very helpful. Kind of a <laughs> pain in the butt is what you are. <laughs> so you're the systems guy. You knew most of the electronic and electrical side, and you really taught me a lot. And just so you know, I've actually just this last year, and I've helped out people in the past. I had so many people help me with so many different things as I started in the boating industry and with my boat. And... I've learned a lot and from the beginning I try to help people out when I can help out and I helped out one buddy and he had not a big deal I think it's windless the button wouldn't go down mm -hmm. and it wasn't that big of a deal but I just went through the system and okay well and we checked this and this and this and and figured out it was the wire between here and here and we spliced in a new wire bam boom boom everything's good and got done and he's like, you know, and I'm teaching him what I'm doing so he can learn. And he's like, where did you learn all this stuff? Which I'm thinking I didn't do anything that big of a deal. All I did was test, you know, with a different wire, what was working and what wasn't working. Yep. And then I spliced in a wire. I mean, which is basically cutting off the ends of wires and then uh, putting them together and crimping them down. But I was like, well, I learned it all from Joel. <laughs> and so I really did learn a lot from you, but I don't know how much you can do, but why don't you tell me a little bit or tell our listeners a little bit about how the, the condition of the boat, what we did for that nine months, what you learned about the boat, what you wanted to change, how we interject, but let's start with that and move forward. Okay, well, let me think here. I mean, that was nine years ago. Um, well, I know, you know, the I mean, the overall condition of the boat was actually pretty good. I would agree. I, I mean, it was, I mean, they're really, it wasn't really that the boat needed, and, you know, I said a lot of work, even though it was a lot of work for what we did, you know, we did a lot of work on the boat, but overall, this, the, the overall boat was actually in pretty good sound condition. I feel like most of our time, not all of it, but at least half our time was not necessarily working on the boat. But going through each one of the systems and learning how it worked yes. and maybe we improved something. The one thing that irritated me with the boat was, you know, at the time I bought it, it was a 12-year-old boat, had gone through bare boat, had gone cruising, all that. There were times that upgrades were done and then they just left the old stuff there. Yeah. And so half the time we would be going through just to learn, okay, let's figure out... I don't know, give me an example, the the uh, 110 AC system yeah, and the, the inverter, AC. and we're learning that, and we're like, where does this wire go? And we learn it, it goes nowhere. Yeah. And so we, you know, we were pulling wires out, because my philosophy, and I think you agree, is if it's not being used, take it out so it doesn't cause a yeah. problem later well, on. Well, I think if I remember correctly, didn't we have uh, two solar chargers on the boat? Yep. Yeah, and you're right and the idea is, okay, we have two solar chargers, they both look like they're hooked up but you're like okay this isn't doing anything but this is doing something so okay what's going on and then it's spending all the time figuring out that no the solar panels 
are only hooked up to this charger. They're not hooked up to the other charger, but they left it in, they left it hooked up, and it shouldn't have been there. So it's, you know, pulling the stuff out that shouldn't have been left there. Um, you know, actually taking the time to test, you know, like we're testing all the batteries. Uh, I, I, I do like, if you want to have some fun, guys, get an electrical guy, get him to get his testing equipment, and then give him a dummy uh, system, and he's sitting there fiddling around with the system going, well, why isn't, why isn't my uh, voltmeter working and all this, and he's testing on other things. It works there. It doesn't work. Man, it was like a monkey doing a math problem for five minutes trying to figure out what was going on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but uh, um, I still think the funny thing was uh, the, uh, the uh, shore power system. If you plug the shore power in with the inverter hooked up, it, oh, blew, yeah. it would blow the circuit. And uh, it was actually learning that really the... Uh, the well, end... Let me interject real quick okay. for people that might not know exactly. When he says blow the circuit, it, all he means is it uh, popped a fuse. And just like in your house, we had to go back and switch the fuse back on. Yeah. Basically what it was is the whole battery inverter system was hooked up to supply, you know, the batteries go through the inverter, inverter supplies the 110 volts. And uh, normally I'm used to systems where the shore power is set up in such a way that when you plug it in, it works in combination with the inverter potentially. And the inverter normally shuts off and turns into a battery charger, which charges the batteries. Not all systems work that way, but a lot of systems do. Okay, let me interject real quick, just to, some of our people aren't very technical, okay. so let me explain. Some of the words he's using, um, the 110 is your basic uh, wall sockets that you have in your home that Correct. we plug into televisions, blenders, all that we use as 110. Boats tend to be, but aren't always, but tend to be 12 volt systems. So an inverter takes the electricity from 12 volt direct current, correct? Direct current. Into a 110 alternating current. A lot of technical stuff that you don't really need to know unless you want to get into that, but it basically turns it in for what runs the boat and it runs all the motors, all the pumps, all that type of stuff, and it turns that electricity into what you can use to run all your household stuff. Yeah, correct. Okay. And uh, you know, and whoever had hooked the boat up before uh, didn't document or anything. So what happened is, as soon as we plugged it in shore power, it basically caused the inverter to short out and blow the breaker. And so we we fought with that for a while until we discovered that on shore power you have to unplug. Yeah, that was, that was your very uh, professional, <laughs> insightful answer. Instead of let's fix the problem, just unplug the uh, 110 volt. But I think the other issue was, we, at the time, we didn't want to spend the money for the uh, new circuitry to fix that. So our solution was, before shore power, you unplug the inverter, and then you put a safety plug cap over the uh, plug, because... Uh, Shore power came through the male end of the cable when you had it on shore power. Remember that? Yep. And, and so that was a safety thing. And I've got to tell you, nine years later, that's still the system that I use. I <laughs> unplug the 110 from the inverter, and when I go on shore power, and then the uh, 110 works from the shore power, and I still do that. And, <laughs> and it may not be the correct way, but it's the way of my boat was wired, and so... You work with the, uh, some of the limitations. Some of the things you fix, uh -huh. some of the things you work with. Yep, yep. <laughs> Let's see here. 
Um, yeah, well, so uh, again, uh, it, to me, and I, I think Shane will agree with this, it seemed like over the years, a lot of changes had been made to the boat because a lot of stuff was just not documented on that boat. And not done completely proper. Yeah, that is correct. And the one thing I will, I will put out to anyone listening, anytime you make a change to your boat or to any system, document, document, <laughs> document. I may not be the best on that. I've got it all documented up here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I, I, I try to keep all my, re, all, not receipts, but all my manuals and stuff like yeah. that, which do help. And, and I will say, it's documenting is usually, it's not something most people enjoy doing, but the more you can document, even if it's just writing down like a little circuit diagram of the change you made, it would be, it's really helpful to you in the, you know, later when you might not remember exactly what you did, but hey, if it's written down, it's easy. Plus, you can go to a professional and say, "Hey, here are the modifications I made," and then they can work on your systems without you know having to spend hours or multiple boat units trying to figure out what you did. And a boat unit would be a thousand dollars. You'll hear that in the uh, cruising uh, groups and stuff. We uh, will just say it. Sometimes we call it a boat buck or a boat unit, and that means one thousand dollars because it seems like everything you do costs. One thousand dollars. Um, now, one guy, when I first bought my boat, he was telling me a story, and similar to the documenting, and he was talking how he takes all of his manuals and he puts them basically in a big binder with yeah. uh, open sleeve um, holders, and he puts them in somewhat order, but doesn't necessarily label them. Just has all the manuals, and he says when he sold his boat just pulling those out for the inspector or the surveyor the surveyor is like wow yep you should definitely buy this boat not because it was in better shape but because if someone takes the time just to do that yep. means that they're going to take the time to take care of the boat a little bit better and so just from a resale point of view you may consider that awesome yeah um, let's see here what else um, I, I remember when we got into the engine compartments it took us a long time to figure out how the entire electrical was hooked up for charging of the batteries. Yeah. And because again, there was no documentation. Uh, but we did eventually figure it out that, you know, you had the double alternator system, uh, which were all feeding back to a central... Uh, Where they uh, fed the two starter batteries yes. for each engine. Yeah. And, and then either or both of them went to the house battery. Yeah, they, but they went through the battery isolator. Yeah. And uh, the battery isolator, and uh, just word of caution, anytime you have a battery isolator, um, the battery isolator is, a, is made up of what's called a diopack, which, which basically keeps everything separate. Um, when you have one of those in line with your batteries, it will actually drop the voltage that is going to the batteries. So many times the sensor wire for your alternator, if you have one, you would actually want to put it on the battery side of the isolator and not on the alternator side or else it will not charge the batteries properly. Just kind of a word of caution, um, but you would always want to look at the directions of that isolator before you actually make that change. And guys, if y'all were confused with everything he just said, I understand I've been that way for what, 44 years now, so he is just amazing. He knows a whole lot of crap and I understand a tenth of it. So um, don't feel bad if you didn't understand everything he just said. 
but he's 100% <laughs> accurate on it. Um, what else you got on the boat? Because I do, since you're talking about engines, I wanted to lead into something else that we've okay. been discussing for pretty much since we bought the boat. Yeah. I've... You have been researching. We know that when I bought the boat, the engines had 7,000 hours yeah, they on were them. 7,000 approach, I mean, 7,000 to 8,000 hours. Something like that. And I've been which, using it for nine years, and I'm almost to 13,000 hours on these diesel engines. Which, that is 13,000 hours, uh, you know, if you had a car that you're driving at 30 miles an hour, you're approaching 400,000 miles of equivalency, and I've which been, is a lot. I've been told diesel engines, I've heard people say anything between five and 20,000 hours. So yeah. it's not like I'm like way out there, but I'm definitely, when people hear 13,000, they give me this, whoa. Yeah. But since the beginning, you have been doing research because we know we have to repower the boat. Yep. But you've been looking at doing electric engines. Yeah, we've been we've been talking about electric motors uh, since I, since you got the boat because we knew the motors were eventually going to have to be replaced. I think we both thought they would have to be replaced. They should have been replaced a lot sooner <laughs> than they have. But um, but they keep working. They, I mean, they, they keep working. They do what they need to do. <laughs> but I do think they are finally getting to that point where they are actually saying we are tired and ready to be retired. I have nothing to argue against that point. <laughs> yeah. um, and you know, over and, and you know, as I as, as we just recently were discussing, uh, electric motors for boats have in the in the last nine years, they have, you know, they where they are nine years ago to today is just incredible. Well, before you go into that, mm -hmm. a lot of people are like, whoa, that is brand new technology. That's actually not true, is it? I mean. The cruise ships have been using electric engines for oh, yeah. 40 years now. Uh, yeah, uh, actually a lot of your boats, uh, especially your big cruise ships, uh, 20, 30 years ago, they were using electric motors. Uh, so it's not really that brand new of technology. Um, to give you an idea, uh, the the whole idea of an electric motor operating you know, a vehicle, uh, that's been, been, they've been doing that in the train industries for decades. You know, we're talking back into actually into uh, 19 uh, I work on a vehicle in the Dallas area uh, that's a, it's a streetcar that had electric motors in 1905 and it works on a very similar principle as we're talking with the boat only difference is now we're using high-tech technology to control the speed versus switches and resistors um, and just let's talk about the um the, so when we say electric motors, we're talking a motor that is actually driven by electricity. Yes. But you still have a diesel generator. Yes. That provides that electricity. Yeah. Uh, what we're talking about is um, is actually taking a scenario where you replace that engine that's driving the propeller going through the sail drive or you know straight shaft. And what we're going to do is we're actually going to combine it into a single unit that is a combination uh, engine or diesel engine and what's called the generator head, which is going to produce the electricity needed. From that point, we're actually going to go through a control box um, and that basically runs through the same uh, controls that you would use to run your boat, you know, normally throttle up your boat. And, uh, and it's going to electrically control the motor which then goes either straight shaft to your propeller or through a sail drive system. Now on chains about catamaran uh, with the sail drives uh, there are actually brand new technologies out, been out for a few years now 
where the sail drive itself is the electric motor. So now you're not taking up all this space with a big engine and the sail drive. It's You basically pull out your old sail drive, pop in this new sail drive, and it houses the motor and everything you need for the sail drive. Now the only thing you have to do is mount the electronics, which most of these electronics you know, can fit in a little bitty six by six area. So they're very small, very compact. Most of them that are being built for the boating industry today are made from what's called potted material, which basically just means it's encased in a basically a waterproof material. So the salt air will not get to it. It's got sealed, sealed connectors that your moisture's not gonna get to, the salt air's not gonna get to it and rust it out. Um, unfortunately, right now, um, as all these improvements have come, they've come at a great cost. And so, uh, give you an idea, replacing one of the engines uh, in Shane's boat, to replace that engine and sail drive, at one time we had looked at probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about $12,000. Per side. Per side. Um, and at the time, a number of years ago, we could potentially put uh, a sail drive system, an electric sail drive system in on one side of the boat um, for probably about 8,000, but we still had to get the generator. Um, and so it was gonna be probably just a little more expensive uh, to do it that way, but that was with a, equipment that really wasn't as robust as it is today. Today's robust equipment um, would actually, on Shane's boat, we actually, I think I calculated it out, to put the generator, to put a generator in, and to put a dual cell drive system in on Shane's boat, was actually going to cost somewhere in the neighborhood of about thirty to thirty-six thousand dollars. Now he switched numbers on you. That's total cost, That's not total per cost. side. But so we're playing a little bait and switch on you. We're talking about the electric motors and all that. But we've actually chosen not to do that on the guy. We have line. actually chosen not to it, and really not so much because of the cost. I mean, that's part of our, our reasoning for not doing it. But the big reason we've decided not to do it is um, if, if Shane was going to spend most of his time sailing around Florida and against the U.S. coast um, and those areas, getting any of this equipment maintained would be super easy. You know, it would just be, hey, one of the sides is not working properly. You go into any marina. They might not be able to directly work on it, but they can easily get you the replacement parts. But now, if he's going to be going down to the Virgin Islands, BVI, and even further south. Or west. I mean, or west, Tahiti. Tahiti. Now, India, now, Indonesia. Now you're running into the problem is, well, if, if I do have a failure in one of these components, rather than being a day or two to get, he's now looking at it could take a month or more. And that cost could be exorbitant to get it there. And the other part that I looked at, and you're looking at it from the engineering point of view, I'm looking at it from practicality. Diesel engines have been around, let's say, 100 years. They've been around for a long time. Maybe longer than 100 years, whatever. But you can find someone that is just naturally good at diesel engines. You can find a diesel mechanic anywhere in the world. I bet I can go to the middle of Africa and find a diesel mechanic because they have diesel cars or yeah. diesel generator or whatever i can find a diesel engine anywhere and i can find parts for a diesel engine almost anywhere in the world yep and a yanmar that the yanmar you get in the u.s is the same yanmar you're getting everywhere else whereas an electric system yes it's pretty simple 
but there's a lot of relays or a lot of switches or a lot of little things that can go wrong and you're not going to be able to find someone around the world on a consistent basis that even knows what the hell is in the boat that is correct much less how to fix it and then there are so many different companies and just like computers you can't plug this part into that computer and yeah. and all that so there's a little bait and switch for you we are actually going to stay traditional but we did look quite extensively into electric motors and we're going to continue looking into it for the future yeah i'm not putting more money into the engine <laughs> i'm doing it once man hey hey hey, hey. in 12 years you're going to be re ready to replace that stuff the engines again well this is true you know what and, and i can't and i can't say i won't be on the boat in 12 years in 12 years so in another 12 years you know stay tuned and in 12 years we'll let you know what we decide to do there you go okay so joel um what other boat systems on the boat did you did, brings up something you want to mention any stories about them anything boat system related actually really i mean it just overall uh, you know, because you didn't really get into the plumbing side of it. No, where... didn't get. I mean, actually, your, the plumbing on the boat was actually reasonably good. Yeah, except I had to put in new holding tanks. Remember, you, you had to put new holding tanks in, of which you then I think took the holding tanks out. I did, and switched over to composting toilets, which I think are phenomenal. They're not for everybody, but composting toilets have been fantastic. And you know how boats get that boat that head smell? Yes. And the head is the nautical term for a bathroom but you get these boats and they just smell i don't want to say like poo but they smell like head you they know smell like a bathroom they smell like a bathroom and no, no, I, i'm sorry i'm going to put it they smell like a men's room <laughs> <laughs> there you go a men's room and a yankees game that's right <laughs> um I don't get that on with these composting toilets. Yes, they're not for everyone because you've got to dump the composting at different points or whatever, but I love those systems. But what surprised me when I bought the Guiding Light, it did not have holding tanks. You pumped the old toilets and you pump and it went directly overboard, which surprisingly, I know a lot of newer boats that do have holding tanks, especially down in the islands, and the owners refuse to use the holding tanks because they don't want to, you know, I don't know, whatever. And they pump directly overboard and put that right into the harbor that you're swimming in. So next time you're out there swimming, just keep that part in mind, people. You see something go by, that may be a harbor trout. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I did have to put the, the holding tank in to be compliant within the U.S., but you didn't really deal with that. Didn't have to deal with that. I know that you ended up replacing the water pump. That yeah. eventually had to be replaced. Um, and we replaced the uh, solar panels. Yes, Not, we actually we replaced We didn't the, do that right then. We did that, what was that, two, three years ago? Yeah, a couple of years ago. Uh, we actually, you know, looked at looked at various solar panels and decided, you know what, the solar panels he had versus the solar panels today. Um, well, the ones I had were at least 10 years old yeah they actually they were going yeah they were at least 10 years if, actually older than that doing the job that they needed to do they but they had, if they, i didn't use my freezer they actually kept up with my electrical needs and i usually had to charge up like every 10 days or something yeah. so they did a fantastic job 
But the biggest problem, besides that they were old and they were only what, 320 yeah, watts? You, you had a total of about 320 watts, but because of their age and in the environment they're in. The location. And the location. Remember, because I had them were, over the Dini. Yeah. And they did not get sun uh, until about 10, 1030 in the they morning. Did, yeah, they, they got their, the sun, they were not properly positioned on the boat. Um, and um, because of all that and the age, even when he was getting peak power on it, he was only getting about uh, 250 watts tops. And it was for a very short period of time. And as the wind blew, it blew the back of the boat typically away from the sun a lot of times. And then the, they didn't really do much. Um, so it, at one point it was decided, you know, I, he, needed, he needed new solar panels. Technology's come a long way. Um, and I... And three years before that, I built the hardtop yep, over put a hard the top. cockpit. So that made the possibility of moving them yeah. a possibility. And so what we ended up doing was uh, buying a three, what, 300 watts panels. So 320 watt panels, I believe. I think it was 255. Uh, 255. I've got 765 watts. Okay, seven, okay. So basically we, we doubled it, but we put them in a more optimal location, which was on top of the hardtop. And whereas before, power coming in he wouldn't get power until 10 10 30 in the morning is when they'd start producing when do they produce now they're starting to trickle in at least by 7 and they're making good power by 8 30 yeah and and uh, and as, as I as I said when we installed them at that time I was running short on time to get to the airport and so there's actually a good possibility that the uh, the charger uh, that the uh, battery charger might not be optimally set for power. Possible. But the thing is, it's producing the power you need. Well, now I run my freezer and my fridge, and I use my computer a lot. I, and just, you know, I don't worry. You know, I monitor my power every day, but I don't worry about, you know, yeah. trying to, you know, save power. You know, I'm not a stingy person on the power. I do turn off the inverter and the lights when I'm not using them, that type of thing. But my friends cruising friends they're amazed because i can sit in a bay for two weeks and they're like did have you ever turned your engines on or your i don't have a generator but you know they ask about the generator i'm like no my solar panels keep up with everything that i need where everybody else is having to charge up every other day or every day yeah. so to me having solar panels is a must do on the boat and to be perfectly honest it cost all of a thousand dollars for the equipment yeah it was and then you and i installed it in two days three days yeah we actually uh, unfortunately the the panels ended up coming in late so uh that's what cut us short on time uh but uh yeah they installed relatively actually most of the installation time was this going okay we got these panels now we got to really figure a good way to install them because you know, a lot of times some of the bracketry that's out there for the panels really isn't designed to go on a boat. It's designed to go on the roof of a house. Yeah. Um, and and uh, what we ended up doing, we just got aluminum L-shaped. Yeah, we, we actually got some uh, some decently thick aluminum uh, L-shaped brackets and cut them all uh, to size and used that for mounting of the of the panels directly to the hard top. Um, all the wires were able to, we were able to easily run underneath the panels because they stayed raised off the hardtop slightly. Um, we ran those down, uh, into, into the, uh, into the, the, into the boat and got it to the charge controller. I mean, I think the only thing I would have done a little bit differently is maybe increase the size of the wire we used. 
Um, oh. and, that, and that's not from a safety point of view, but it's in a the voltage drop that you get when you start running wire. But what do we use? I think we use 14 gauge. No, we used 8 gauge. 8 gauge? We used an 8 okay. gauge, eight gauge See, wire. this is why I have him and I don't... Um, 8 gauge is a pretty darn thick wire, yeah, so it's I, not I, like we went skimpy on it. No, no, I, I think when we calculated it, uh, 12 gauge is technically all you needed to okay. run it. But because of the voltage drop you get um, with DC and the fact that we're talking 12 volts in the amperage, um, we stepped up to about an 8 gauge for to help minimize that, that power loss. If you did it again, you would do 6 gauge? I'd probably go on with a 6 gauge. Okay. Uh, that 6 gauge probably would have given you an extra 2 or 3% in electricity. Gotcha. Now, um, can you explain very quickly and very... Let's dumb it down for me. Okay. So, just explain. You're using the words watts, amps, volts. Can you explain what those terms mean? Because they are okay. actually all related they to each other. They all are related. Um, watts, best way to look at what watts is, is the amount of amount of energy you have, kind of like a complete energy. Um, like when, when you look at uh, a microwave oven, you'll see a microwave oven, you know, and I know everyone has a microwave oven on a boat, don't they Shane? Yeah, I got rid of mine as soon as I got to chemo. <laughs> <laughs> but you see a microwave oven, it'll say it's a, a thousand watts, which means the total energy that it needs to run is a thousand watts. Um, well, that number come, comes up when you start, when you take voltage and multiply it by the amperage. Um, voltage is basically just, oh, best way I look at it, at it is, uh, voltage is, is a stream of water coming out of a hose. It can be a very narrow stream, but it goes a long distance. So we're talking pressure. We're talking, pr you know, so you have this long stream, and it's, it's the amount of, I guess, kind of a pressure that's going out the end of that line. Well, it's a lot. It's 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 going a long ways, but it's a very little amount of, of water. And yeah, you could maybe wash your car with it, but it's going to take a long time. But it's it's a lot of water. You know, it's a it's a long stream of water with high pressure. Well, then when you increase the size of the hose, now you're getting the long stream with a lot more water, and that's so, kind of the amperage. So it, the voltage. Let me see if I got this. So the voltage is going to be the pressure of the water coming out and how far it, basically and, it's and how, how far the water can how go. far it can go that's your voltage yeah the more you increase your voltage the further it's gonna you go. can go and the more pressure you can put through it yeah where the amperage would be your gallons coming out yeah it's gonna be that bigger pipe that's pushing more water that distance and you get to watts by multiplying your volts well, by your amps. amperage yes so so it's quite simple when you say it this slowly. Unfortunately, working with Joel, he jumps between the three like he's playing hopscotch and throws numbers around. And I'm scratching my head trying to just do the math between these different numbers. And I finally give up and just tell, just tell me what to screw on. <laughs> okay, so we're, we're getting a little bit towards the end here. My couple questions. Uh -huh. Any other boat-related system stuff do you want to talk about? Uh, no, I think we've, we've talked okay. about quite a bit of it. I mean, there might be more to talk about in another blog. You bet. And then the next question, you've been on the boat three times. I mean, besides in Kima when you came on for the weekend, but we stayed on the dock. You've actually gone on three different trips with me. Um, anything, any stories that you want to relate on any of that? Um, let's see here. I mean, on the Kima, 
And we, I mean, Kima, I mean, we, we, did a, we didn't really do a lot of motoring around. We did that a couple of times. Yeah, once or twice. Um, you know, and uh, I think the real, the, you know, the real first experience on the boat where we actually went somewhere is going down the intercoastal. On the Gulf from Houston to New Orleans, you were yeah, with me. Yes, I was, and uh, getting used to the, you know, requesting to pass on your, uh, on your two. And on the, the difference, uh, the Gulf side is pretty much all commercial. It's all tugs moving six huge barges where the East Coast is mostly recreational stuff. But so we had a bunch of um, uh, tug captains trying to let us get around and stuff. And then the second time? Um, let's see here. But actually, I was going to say uh, oh, okay. the most memorable thing about being on the intercoastal was, you know, here we are. We're passing these these tugboats and the barges, and we're not going much faster than them. Mm -hmm. So it's, okay, we got, you know, six barges ahead of us. We'll try to make it before the next barge comes. And sometimes we had to back off and fall back behind them. But usually we were passing them. <laughs> and then one time I was, I was in the... Uh, I was at the the wheel, the helm, the helm. I'm I'm great at boat knowledge. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm at the helm, and uh, all of a sudden I get this uh, this Coast Guard cutter to sailing vessel guiding light permission to pass on your two, and then all of a sudden is like turning around and here's this massive Coast Guard cutter. It's like uh, permission granted, mm -hmm. and it motors by us. And then as that motors by, you see there's a 50 caliber gun on it. It was just kind of fun. <laughs> it was impressive when that sucker went by us. <laughs> yes, it was. Any other stories you want to talk about on that? Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of fun. It got quite cold. It did get quite cold. I was thinking you might have a story from, say, Turks and Caicos to the Virgin Islands. Oh, yes. Are you talking <laughs> about our crossing? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, uh, that was uh, that was very interesting. Joel still talks slash complains about this crossing, which we were in 30 to 35 knot winds, which we knew were coming. We knew a cold front was coming through, which gave us the northeast winds we needed. We expected it to be closer to 25, but it was up to 35. I figured the waves were 12 to 14 foot. And we did it in three and a half-ish days yeah. from, Turks, uh, from Grand Turk to St. Thomas. But he still complains about this. And what was your worst part about it? Worst part was, uh, let's see here, the Dramamine and the Silver Dot just really didn't do much for me. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, and yes, I mean, it was, it was, you know, for me, it was kind of miserable during the, during the heaviness. But I think uh, the, the, the most interesting part was I was asleep trying to get my little two hours of sleep in before Shane woke me up to, 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 for watch. And all of a sudden I hear this, Joel, Joel, get up, get up, get up. I'm half asleep. I'm like, what, what? And bearing down on us are two cruise ships less than a mile apart and we're getting ready to go right between them. Shane's in the boat or Shane's up at the helm and I'm getting on the radio basically going, this is sailing vessel guiding light to the two cruise ships. Uh, uh, we are right in your path. And after about a few minutes, one of the boats comes over and says, hey, you know, this, this is who we are. Uh, what's going on? I'm like, well, just to let you know, we are right in the middle of you two or and you're bearing down on us. And I gave him our GPS coordinates. 
and then all of a sudden, if you've seen the movie, uh, The Lord of the Rings, it was like the eye of Sauron just lit up and was searching around the water, searching around back and forth until it found us, and then all of a sudden we were in daylight. <laughs> and this light, and the guy comes over and says, we got you, we're watching out for you. And the light stayed on us until we got behind the boats, and then it turned off. And then they were gone. I mean, they, <laughs> they were, were gone over the horizon in what 10, 12 minutes. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how quick boats move out there in the middle. That's why you got to keep that watch. Yep. So um, I'm getting ready to sign off, but I'm gonna give you the opportunity. Try not to be too mean about this, but do you have any embarrassing stories that you think the listeners should know about me? Do, do I have to keep it PG? Keep it PG-13. PG-13. Embarrassing story. And remember that you still have to deal with me later on. <laughs> well, in that case, uh, this has been a great podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Guiding Light Podcast. This is Shane McClellan with Joel James. Yep. And we are going to say goodbye in fair winds and following seas.